Before we get to this week's recap of Game of Thrones, Season 4, Episode 5, I want to take a moment and thank our sponsor for this episode of the podcast. Those are our friends over at True Car who have some useful tips that you may not be aware of, like how a coffee filter and a little bit of olive oil can help clean your interior of your car. You can also remove excess weight from your car to improve its gas mileage. And you can place your keychain remote underneath your chin to increase its range. All weird tips, but here's one that you might not know about. True Car can help people get a used car as well. That's right. True Car isn't just for buying a new car. With the certified dealer network and nationwide inventory of nearly 1 million used cars, you'll enjoy real pricing on actual inventory and a singular buying experience whether you buy new or used. And with True Car, you can see what other people paid so you'll know if you're getting a good deal before you buy. And you'll also be more likely to enjoy a faster buying experience when you connect with a True Car certified dealer. So when you're ready to buy a new or used car, check out True Car to enjoy a more confident car buying experience. Some features are not available in all states or Gin Alley. Winter was here, but we are just getting started on our rewatch of Game of Thrones Season 4, Episode 5, first of his name. And now here are the two guys who are ready to scream so loud in delight to talk about this episode of Game of Thrones with you. I'm Rob Sister, and here's Josh Wiggler. Josh, how are you? <laughs> yes. First, the long ah! may he reign. Oh, my goodness. First one out of his name. <laughs> yes. All right. Uh, a lot to talk about here again this week as Tommen is sworn in. Uh, we have a lot going on in the Vale. Uh, we have uh, a whole big scene going on at Craster's Keep. Oh, that's going to be fun <laughs> to discuss. I feel like we're going to have the best time of the episode at Craster's Keep. I know, a lot of wacky stuff going on here uh, in this episode. Uh, Josh, how have you been? I have been great. Uh, very, very good over here. Uh, I have been so curious to get to this episode because in my memory, I always thought of the of the big battle at Craster's Keep as just Game of Thrones needing an excuse to insert some action into the middle of their season. Otherwise, if they're just going by the book, the Jon Snow story really kind of spinning its wheels until the battle at Castle Black uh, and Bran. I, you know, I don't know about spinning wheels, but, mm-hmm. you know, it, it really... Uh, uh, it's just kind of wandering around beyond the wall with Hodor and all those guys, unless they do something. So it always felt a little manufactured to me in my memory, and I wanted to revisit it and see how it held up. And maybe it's just because we've had so much fun with Crasher's Keep, but I, I really enjoyed going back to this scene. I, I think still objectively it feels a little manufactured, but just in terms of sheer entertainment, I had a good time watching this episode. Okay. Well, let's get into everything. I heard from a, a few people that uh, people really enjoyed our last uh, Game of Thrones uh, rewatch. I am having a lot of fun going through it scene by scene and not having to split it up by spoilers. Yeah, no, it's freeing. It's liberating. Uh, and anyone who, who misses it the old way, there's a hundred podcasts. Mm-hmm. There's probably not quite that many, but there's a lot of podcasts that, that we have done, even just us, uh, going through all those episodes in a spoiler free way. So go back into the archives. Did you, uh, did you listen back to any of our, uh, first of his name podcasts? I did from not. The first I did time? not yeah. get a chance to. I wonder how, uh, we reacted to everything that was happening in the veil. I bet uh, probably with a little more enthusiasm, but probably not as much information. Yeah, and probably with fewer like Wanda voiced impressions mm-hmm. of what was going on there. Probably. Okay, mm-hmm. uh, let's get to the inauguration of King Tommen being sworn. Yes, in. yes. Long so may Tommen he reign. Is, long may he reign. At least a couple of seasons. Uh, he'll be he'll be here for a little while. He's got like a, a solid like two and a half seasons to be in charge. Yeah. Who had more episodes as King, Joffrey or Tommen? Ooh, good question. Um, I think I, it's think, close. I think it's Tommen. Uh, so, so here he is in episode five of season four. Mm-hmm getting sworn in uh and he's gonna be the king until the season six finale and joffrey isn't going to be sworn in until episode 
eight, nine of season one. No, I so, think it's earlier than that because uh, that they, uh, he, you know, he takes uh, Ned Stark's head by. Oh, sure. So it's seven. It's seven. But I think it's by like an episode or two. I think Tom yeah. and out outlasts Joffrey on the throne. Okay. Uh, interesting. Uh, that's a good. Yeah, you wouldn't you wouldn't think that, right? That kind of puts into context like how much Game of Thrones we still have to go, and Danny's going to be in me read for almost all of it. <laughs> yeah. All right. So Tommen, that he's the new king. He has like this whole receiving line. Everybody is like uh, coming to pay their respects. Marjorie is off watching from the distance, but Cersei is able to see. What is he looking at up there? Oh, Marjorie. She goes yeah. right up there. I really enjoy that first uh, moment where Tom and, and Marjorie are like watching each other from the distance. And then Cersei just like steps up and just like blocks the, the two of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just so, so uncomfortable. Ah, mom, stop it. You're embarrassing me in front of my wife. Uh, Cersei's going to go over and talk to Marjorie. And Cersei, who the last time these two had like a, you know, a real private moment uh, before the wedding uh, was really uh, snapping at at Marjorie, and uh, here she's saying like, "Yeah, I kind of, I kind of want you to to marry my son again, if that's cool with you." And she's like, "Yeah, I mean, I hadn't really thought about it at all. Definitely not one bit, but sure, let's do it." Yeah, it did seem like that this was a quick pivot for Cersei. I don't know if she just uh, came to understand. I mean, we'll see her talking with Tywin later on in the episode about that they need the Tyrells still, but. That for Cersei, that uh, only, you know, a few episodes back was, you know, talking about Marjorie as a you know what. And uh, she had wanted nothing to do with her. And then you would think that she would think, okay well, the one saving grace uh, is that uh, Joffrey doesn't have to be married to Marjorie. But she seems very inclined to have Marjorie marry Tommen. I think what's going on with Cersei right now is she's going to talk to the Red Viper later in this episode about what's going on with her daughter in um, in Dorne and being kind of like wistful about being away from her. Certainly her son is dead now. She is very upset about that and I think is still in, uh, you know, really in the, the clutches of, of that grief. Um, but I think as best as she can, she's being pragmatic about the fact that my daughter is in the hands of people that I don't like, and my son is now on the Iron Throne in a precarious position and is, you know, really young, very sweet, good kid, but A, shouldn't be here because my other son, who is now dead, should be on the throne, and B, I just don't know if he has what it takes to to lead at this point, and he's going to be somebody who's very moldable and all of that, and I think she's trying to think realistically in terms of, uh, we need the Tyrells, we need all of this in place, and then once, you know, everything goes on with Tywin dying and Tyrion is going to escape like she thinks at the very least she's going to get justice for Joffrey and then when all of that is going to break open I think that that's going to you know knock Cersei back to crazy town I think is going to be the thing that uh, moves her off of the path of reason but would you say that the writing for her is at least somewhat inconsistent this season I mean we saw her last week uh, with Jamie and and she's like Grilling Jamie about, you know, are you more loyal to Cat Stark or to me? But then, you know, as you mentioned, she's very pragmatic here in this episode. Do you think that that has to do with different writers writing uh, different episodes? I don't think so. I, I think to me, like, I think the through line makes some sense that she's getting to this place of like, I have to keep it cool in order to keep going. I think she's in the, you know, the stages of grief. Uh, maybe she's yarred, yara yarred to, uh, to acceptance at this point, but, uh, that's where she seems to be in the cycle at this moment. All right. Well, they have to talk about Tommen being the king, could be the first decent king in 50 years. It's all very exciting. Uh, Marjorie plays it really cool of when, uh, Cersei asks her about being married to Tom and she's like oh I didn't even think about that that's so crazy yeah it's like no wow oh my god really whoa you blew my mind yeah and so it looks like that uh, they're on the same page it seems as though Marjorie uh, just continues to put her foot in her mouth and I'm not sure if it's intentionally or unintentional with Cersei when uh, she says I won't know whether to call you sister or mother and she's gotta know that Cersei doesn't like that. I mean, what was it that Cersei said to her? If you ever call me sister again, I'll have you murdered in your sleep, right? 
And she's like, but what about mother? Yeah. Can I call you mother? Would that be better? Yes. Is she trying to antagonize Cersei? It's either that or it's the flaw in Marjorie's social game where she has this high estimation of herself and either thinks like nothing is going to touch her or is so committed to the con that she like forgets certain details. Like she's so lost in the lie that she's like, oh yeah, I forgot Cersei really didn't want me to call her sister in law. <laughs> okay. Uh, Daenerys is getting some breaking news. Uh, Joffrey is dead. And Hooray! they took the Miranese Navy. They have 93 ships. That is great. Oh, perfect time to go back to King's Landing and get this story moving. 8,000 Unsullied, 2,000 Second Sons. They can do it. We could leave today. Yeah, about that. Khaleesi, the <laughs> wise masters have retaken Yunkai. Yunkai and Astapor, they're having problems in Astapor. There's some guy named like Cleon who has taken over Astapor. Uh, so they have some issues that are happening in Slaver's Bay still. Not only that, the forces that they have are enough to take King's Landing, but probably not enough to take Westeros overall. Barristan thinks that the old houses will join underneath Daenerys' cause if they go right now. Uh, but Jorah seems to not really be feeling it. Yeah, they're trying to push her to, okay, let's go take over uh, King. Let's go raid King's Landing. But Danny's like, look, if I can't even run Slaver's Bay, how am I going to run the Seven Kingdoms? It's a good question. Not it's ready. A good question. Not she's ready. not ready. So she's gonna she's gonna stick around. She's gonna hang in Slaver's Bay, and she's gonna do what queens do. I'll rule, and this does not rule. This is this is upsetting. Yeah, I, I do wish that she would be a little bit more like, look, my dragons are basically adolescents right now that if I just hang out here for a year or so, I'll be able to take King's Landing like no problem. They should, the dragons growing does not even seem to be on her radar. No, not yet. Um, but I mean, I do think one of the one of the deals right now is they're talking about the timing. Like if they are to go to King's Landing right now, it is in the immediate aftermath of the Lanners, Lannisters suffering this huge, huge blow in losing Joffrey. I mean, like it's optically it's a big blow. Like they're probably going to be OK. Um, but like everything is in kind of disarray right now. So if they are able to go off and attack them right now, they've got a decent shot at uh, at messing things up in King's Landing. If they wait a year maybe that opportunity has gone away um but i mean we're in the process of seeing how it's playing out now do you think it would have been better if they had just marched off to king's landing at this point than wait as long as they did well the it's that game we always like to play here right aren't as big and so they would have come in with a more fortified but they never really even attacked king's landing yeah, that hasn't so, really <laughs> so maybe if they would have just attacked King's Landing with the plan that they had here, then maybe that that might have been best. Yeah, because at that point, maybe if you can surprise King's Landing in this moment of crisis, you've got uh, it actually be, it would be kind of interesting. Uh, the timing on it, you know, Varys would be there. So he is supportive of Daenerys. Uh, the Red Viper is in King's Landing right now. And like you can almost imagine the the like sort of uh, funhouse mirror version of how um, Aerys Targaryen was taken out where uh, Lord Tywin was the guy who's like, hey, buddy, I'm here. I'm totally here to save you. And he's like, yeah, come on in. And then he comes in and he starts ruining King's Landing and mm -hmm. sacking King's Landing. And like you can imagine and, and like, you know, everything that happens to the Martells. And you can imagine like Oberyn here being like the the guy who lets Daenerys in and lets that team in and everything and a total betrayal of the Lannister. So the situation actually just in hindsight, looking back on it, feels like they probably could have done some serious damage against the Lannister regime right now. And with them out of power, who's left Stannis Baratheon? Yeah. People are probably flocking back to the old Targaryen days. Yeah. The biggest differences between when she ultimately goes and now are that she does not have the Dothraki with her. Uh, right, I, right now. You know, uh, they did play a big part in the loot train battle. Uh, then the dragons are not full grown and she doesn't have uh, an alliance with Dorne. 
Yeah, but I feel like that is easy to imagine yeah. her forging. Like if she shows up there and Oberyn and, you know, his people are there, I feel like that is uh like, you know, that's that's a really easy alliance. Not that they're bringing a ton of numbers right now. It's really just the Red Viper and Ilaria right. Sand who are kicking around in Dorne. Yeah. Um, but I feel like they can cause some internal damage. But- and the person they're not dealing with right now is a Cersei who has absolutely nothing left to lose, who is a very, very mm-hmm. dangerous person. And you would think that the Lannister forces are a bit more weary at this point in time than they would be at the time that uh, Daenerys finally arrives in season seven. Yeah, you would think so. Except like at that point, Cersei's lost all of her children. And instead of like being so defeated, she's just like hyper folks. It's terrifying. Anyway, yeah, neither here nor yeah. there. Tommen um, would have surrendered the city probably, you know, the instantly. First, first dragon he sees like, oh, immediately. Yeah. Yeah. Sir, Sir Pounce, no! <laughs> yeah. You know? Surrendering is wise, right? <laughs> yeah. That would be wise. Yeah. In that situation, I feel like it would be. Mm-hmm. Oh, how does, how does that play out? Like, does Daenerys just, like, outright kill Tommen? Mm, I think she lets him live. Yeah. Does she, like, try to, like, maintain some, some sort of peace? Like, she meets Tommen and she's, like, she tries to, to heal the, heal the rift between houses Lannister and Targaryen and she picks up the Marjorie Tyrell role or I think she offers them they can go back to Casterly Rock if they bend the knee yeah like Tom and you can be in charge of the Lannister house your grandfather has to die your uncle and your uh, mom have to die uh, Tyrion at that point, I don't think he's proved much value. So unless he can really talk himself out of it, I don't know uh, if I like Tyrion's mm-hmm. shot. Yeah. All right. Well, let's get to what's going on in the Vale. Yes. Oh, my God. So much is happening all night long. It's happening in the Vale. Yes. OK. So we are walking up to the bloody gate. That's the only way into the Eerie. That's right. And so uh, that little finger tells Sansa, put up your hood. Memorable color. Yeah. Oh, my God. And the, the people in the veil, no, no one's colorblind. Everyone sees that red for what it is. Uh, maybe like put the hood up earlier because like by the time she's putting the hood up, she's like being watched by all of these different people in the veil. And like that feels fishy to me. Yeah. No. You know? Uh, very fishy. And so we see Littlefinger, he announces himself, and, uh, they bring him up to see Sweet Robin and Lysa. Have we not seen Lysa and Sweet Robin since season one? I believe that's correct. Wow. I believe, I believe it has been that long. And, you know, I could wait it a little longer. <laughs> what? You weren't pumped up to see them again? Uh, not, not so much, uh, gotta say, uh, no, you know, they're, they're great characters for what they are, uh, for what they represent. Like they are just kind of like twisted byproducts of the cruelty of Westeros and their own madness and hubris and all of that stuff. Um, and sweet Robin especially is just like such a little twerp of a kid. And I do think that game of Thrones does a great job when they have twerps, uh, on the show and sweet Robin is definitely, uh, if I were to rank the twerps of game of Thrones, just like the, the people who you would noogie the hardest, I feel like sweet Robin would be high on the list. He'd be high up there. And Littlefinger has a present for sweet Robin. It is a glass bird who sweet Robin will then throw out the moon door later on in this scene. Uh, if I'm Littlefinger, I'm like, hey, what gives? I just got to yeah. do that. Yeah. Well, that's the sign of a man who thrives on chaos. Like, OK, uh, didn't anticipate the glass bird just being tossed out the moon door. Now I got to pivot away from that and not be furious. Otherwise, it's going to be it's going to be bad. I'm just going to I'm just going to toss this kid out the moon door. That's going to plot. You know, it's going to blow everything. So uh, he just has to play it cool in that moment. But man, sweet Robin, that's just the the sign of a, a kid who has had everything in his entire life. Right. Yep. And Lysa is so excited to see them. She says to Sansa, don't you think I know who you are? Come on, get out of here. Come You're here. Sansa, my Besties. niece. Yes, we're best friends. Yes. Yeah. And Lysa is all smiles and hugs. All catching up about how they made her marry Tyrion. Sweet Robin wanted to make the little Lannister baby man fly. That's not right. <laughs> Don't call him baby man. 
I feel like even even now, doesn't Sansa feel like she's still trying to be like, Tyrion wasn't such a bad guy? Like, doesn't that seem to be still like the narrative that she's kind of pushing here? Yeah. Why do you think she should have said that? Like, oh, no, he was the worst. I'm just still tracking this she idea. She was like, betrothed to Joffrey. What does Game of Thrones want us to think about Sansa and Tyrion's thoughts about each other? That's just all that I'm wondering about. Yeah. Just thinking, just yeah. thinking about uh, it. They want us to like Tyrion. I don't know if they want us to think that, uh, oh, you know, they were good together, Sansa and Tyrion. Just planted flags. Just planted flags in yeah. case these flags need to be waved again. Okay. Oh, uh, well, this is Sweet Robin. And so uh, Sweet Robin is going to show Sansa around. And Lysa cannot wait to jump Littlefinger's bones. Let's oh. get married tonight. Let's do it tonight. Yeah. Uh, and that feels quick. I mean, at least inexpensive. Oh, let's not rush into things. Uh, <laughs> I'm pretty tired from the voyage. Oh, I, saw. I need to take a, a long bath. <laughs> oh, my God. Littlefinger. Is that Craster in disguise <laughs> as Littlefinger? Oh, my God. It's his 100th wife. Yes. And Lysa really is excels at getting herself wound up about what wife would do the things for you that I've done. And she's I poured those drops into John's wine. And I, t- yeah. I told, I wrote that letter to Cat Stark like you told me to. And Littlefinger is just the best way to shut her up is with sticking his tongue down her throat. Yeah, just right into the makeout. Uh, it's like, please keep your voice down. Yeah. Your voice really carries outside of the moon door. Yeah. Uh, yeah, she's really, you know, spoiling the whole plot at this point. I kind of wonder that if, he, if she would have kept going, what else would we have found out? Yeah, I know. Uh, so many different secrets. Uh, uh, what What's like the dirtiest, worst secret in you know, worst know. skeleton in Littlefinger's closet? <laughs> we don't want to know? Yeah. Some really bad stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah. So and at one time, you puked at the movie theater <laughs> and then everybody else is puking. It's the worst thing you ever did. Uh, Lysa ends up just bringing in guys to uh, who, who, who like who was that? The Septon? I actually I love the way that this is this is cut like they're going to get married tonight. Right. And then the very next scene She's like she's leaving the the room, and then the very next scene she's returning to the room, mm-hmm. and that's that's later that night, or did that just happen? I think I it happens all in one shot. I think uh, that yeah. Littlefinger's <laughs> like, well, I need to go take a shower, and yeah. uh, she just opens the door and brings in the guy that's going to do the marriage. She's like, no, we're going to do it right now. <laughs> we're uh, doing it live. Yeah, we're doing it live, and there we go. It's just, it's really, it all happens very quickly. She can't wait any longer. Yes. Uh, and Littlefinger, you know, we, we kind of, ourselves, we yard yard through something is, you know, the confession from Lysa Aaron that she killed John Aaron, and it was part of the Littlefinger plot, and the letter that was sent to Ned and Catelyn to kickstart the whole series yeah. was all from Littlefinger. And so, once again, we are just, you know, returning to a moment where so much of the action on Game of Thrones has occurred because of Littlefinger's scheming and plotting, as David Bloomberg would like to say. And yet we know where his story is going to end up ultimately kind of useless in the grand scheme of things. Does this make you any angrier or feel any other kind of way about where Littlefinger is going to go? Just being reminded in this moment of how crucial he was to the storyline. Well, it's frustrating. And then, you know, it reopens an old wound because at, at this point it's like, oh my God, Littlefinger is uh, the one who is responsible for everything. He's pulling all the strings. He knows what he's doing. I can't wait to see what he's going to pull off. But then ultimately knowing where it goes it is frustrating yeah you know that it's we had been given this great gift and then uh basically sweet robin is gonna throw it out the moon door yeah and like i you always wanted Littlefinger to get his comeuppance i think that that's something that you just want to see on the show but I wonder if it was just what it, it feels like it happened too soon. You know, like that really did feel like something that should have been reserved for closer to the end after maybe he's been able to really see a little bit more evidence of like 
the fact that his machinations weren't going to matter at all because there's White Walkers. Like, I, I really would have liked for him to have come into contact with something of the supernatural variety that we know is lurking in the show. Mm-hmm. I think that that collision of all of his careful wheeling and dealing, just, you know, collapsing in the face of the freaking Night King, I think would have been spectacular. No, but- it's, it's a really good point because he, I think, is the personification of all of the politicking that goes on during the show and, you you know, I think a thesis of the show is basically that none of that matters once you are, you know, winter is coming. And right. so to have him There's a actually, version of it, yeah. you know, with like Bran, you know, he, him being able to like see the past and like that's part of what, uh, you know, yeah. condemns Littlefinger. But like that, it's you have to like to, to do a little bit of mental gymnastics. Like it's not super clean, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So Lysa calls her shot here and she says, I am going to scream so loud when my husband makes love to me. Yes. And you cut to Sansa Stark. She is asleep or trying to be asleep. She's tossing and turning in bed. And I've heard what they've said about the ghost of Harrenhal. Uh, who knew there was a ghost in the veil just howling all night long through the halls? Yes. Now, Josh, I want to know from you about uh, Lysa's screaming. That do, do you think that it is due to Littlefinger's prowess in the bedroom, or do you think that Lysa is faking because uh, she basically is sort of broadcasting to everybody, "Hey, he's taken. I'm with Littlefinger." Oh, interesting. Uh, that it's like a it's a tactic. Um, is she marking yeah. her territory or is well, Littlefinger yes. just the ultimate Lothario? Uh, I think, uh, you know, you know, Littlefinger, given like all the things that he knows about that sort of stuff, I wouldn't be completely surprised. But at the same time, it's hard to imagine that he is uh, Don Juan. Uh, <laughs> it's just hard to picture. So I don't know. I don't want to judge. I, it sounds like she had a fantastic night. Who knows how Littlefinger was enjoying it. Uh, good for them. Happy happy days. I'm glad that they're enjoying their nuptials for now. He's doing work. He was putting work in. He's putting, <laughs> that's all Littlefinger does all day long. Everything's for the job. Yes. All right. So uh, we're going to see a little bit uh, of uh, Tywin with Cersei uh, talking about the wedding. And again, Cersei is so reasonable in this episode. Yeah, she's like, yeah, we should probably get Tom and Marjorie together sometime, you know, respectably after uh, all of this has gone down. Two weeks? Yeah, two weeks sounds good. And then what about you and Loris? Yeah, we'll do it too. Respectable amount of time. Respectable. Two weeks. So about a month. This is all incredibly sensible. Yes. And Tywin is talking about how they, you know, need this alliance with the Tyrells and is going on to tell Cersei about the uh, recent hauls from the Lannister gold mines, uh, which have not produced anything in the last three years. That's not good. That's not good. Castle uh, Rock, worthless. Yes. Tywin does give Cersei some cryptic advice and says that, remember, there's always money in the banana stand. (laughs) (laughs) And then Cersei tries to hug Tywin on her way out the door and (laughs) the guards come in and say, no, no touching, no touching. That's funny. Uh, But uh, Cersei, uh, you know, really wants to put a bad word in for Tyrion as well. And Tywin, you know, he takes his job as judge very professionally. He says, look, we can't talk about the trial. Yeah, no, no, that's that's taboo. No, they can't do that. It's uh, forbidden, forbidden subject. Okay. Uh, and the Lannister legacy is uh, very important to uh, to Tywin. Yes, it is. Of course it is. How could it not be? Yeah. All right. Uh, let's check in with Arya and the Hound. And this is a good reset of Arya's list as she's going through it. A lot of names here on the list. And so I thought it'd be fun to check in with uh, the current status. Uh, she kicks it off with Joffrey, who I guess she has not gotten word yet, is, is actually already dead. They don't have a lot of... Uh, I don't think the Wi-Fi in the Riverlands Twitter. is good. Yeah, yeah. No, no Twitter. Cersei, um, what do you think are the chances that Arya gets the kill on Cersei? Um, it's not impossible. I, that's still on the table. I feel like it's probably not the best ending for Cersei. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to say it's not yeah. going to happen. Cersei doesn't even know she has a feud with Arya Stark. 
Correct. Okay. Walter Frey got him. Got him. <laughs> Marin Trant got him. Got him. Tywin. Uh, t- gotten. Gotten. Know, he, he gets got. The he Red Woman. Got. This is interesting. I had kind of forgotten that she was on the list here. I don't know if she continues to be on the list in later seasons. Well, we know that, you know, from season three, Melisandre and Arya, they met up and uh, we will meet again. So that is out there. That has not been answered yet on the show. That feels like something that should come to pass in season eight. Some sort of contact between these two characters. It's just a question of, will it be fatal? We, we certainly know that Arya, A, does not get everybody on the list and B, potentially could even feel differently about some of these people uh, along the way. I mean, she hasn't encountered Beric Dondarrion, and he's really the only person that I feel like she could feel differently about. Mm-hmm. Uh, Beric Dondarrion is also on the list, uh, still alive. That's allegedly. I mean, we hope, we hope, we hope. You know, he may be in there, you know, under a pile of rubble. Thoros of Mir. Uh, he's dead. He's dead. He's gone. Uh, Ilan Payne, he's retconned out of the show. He's off the show, <laughs> so that's not happening. And the mountain. And this was fun, right? Because, you know, that, when she says the mountain, it kind of finally catches the hound's ear. And he's like, who are these people? Why are you naming every single person in Westeros? And she says, it's not everybody. It's just the people that I'm going to kill. And he says, well, if we come across my brother, maybe we can both cross a name off the list. And, you know, we're tracking that Clegane Bowl hype. We're still hoping that something bears out in that regard. Uh, some sort of the Hound and Arya team up against the Ooh. mountain. What do you think? What are the odds? Boy, um, what is Arya's main grievance against the, the mountain? Uh, well, he was there at Harrenhal. He was being awful at Harrenhal. That was another yeah. actor. So, you know, hard to remember. That's not with crystal clarity, but he was there. Yeah. Uh, I kind of feel like the Arya should get the hell out of the way if we have a Clegane Bowl. Yeah. <laughs> like that's her prob- grievances, right. I mean, are, are re- pretty far down the list. I think she's got other people uh, to cross off the list. The Hound is one of the names. That's yes. the last name on the list. <laughs> well, they talk about what would they do if uh, the mountain was there. Uh, the Hound would say, I would tell him to shut the F up so he can get some sleep. She says, wait, I only have one name left to add to the list. And uh, then she says, pretty loud, the Hound. The hound. Yeah. <laughs> like she does the move. Uh, she's like uh, Dominic voting for Chris Noble. <laughs> Put the mic down, hound. Mm-hmm. Okay. You have no bars. Let's check back in with Lysa and Sansa. And uh, Lysa is being very shady towards Cat Stark. Talking about how she, uh, uh, you know, uh, Sansa is eating uh, some sweets. And Cat Stark, uh, she was eating a lot of sweet foods, too. And she was starting to get fat. Yeah, apparently. Uh, I guess that the, the Tully's, the, the love for the lemon cake, it runs deep. It's authentic. It runs deep. And so the, they go from casual conversation and they get into, you know, the lemon cakes. How did we get the lemons? Littlefinger had them delivered. And boy, he really cares a lot about you. Why? Yeah, the the conversation, though, the tenor of the conversation really takes a turn and it becomes very clear very quickly that Lysa is suspicious of Littlefinger's interest in Sansa. Like you said, um, you know, the the possibility that she's just kind of announcing to the world, hands off, Littlefinger's mine. Uh, she's certainly making that clear right now and testing the waters with Sansa. And I think in retrospect, making it pretty clear why she and Catelyn didn't get along so well when they interacted in the first season. She never really liked the fact that Littlefinger loved Catelyn. Catelyn didn't give a crap about Littlefinger while she loved Littlefinger this whole time. And she sees history repeating itself in Sansa. And uh, call her crazy, call Lysa Aaron crazy, and it's certainly not reciprocated from Sansa, but she's not wrong in terms mm-hmm. of Littlefinger's obsession with Sansa. Yeah. And so she uh, really, she grabs Sansa's arm and she wants to know, are you pregnant? What, you know, what, what did he do to your body? What does he do to those women in King's Landing? And she has a lot of questions. And Sansa does a really convincing job here of talking about how, no, he tells me all the time I'm just like a stupid idiot. He hates me and he doesn't even know why he, uh, he's too good for me. And I don't even know. Uh, and then uh, she is able to get Lysa swung around. 
Yeah. And she's able to, yeah, she's able to just like, you know, make it out of that situation. I mean, I really do think that, uh, for all of the atrocities that were leveled against Sansa in her time in King's Landing, like the one thing that she took away from that was she had to deal with the worst of the worst, like really terrible, terrible people. Uh, and as a result, she really learned how to survive. So she has to lie against Lysa Aaron piece of lemon cake that's easy that's easy easy. okay um we check in with brianne and podrick of one of two scenes with them and sure uh, sure wacky stuff podrick can't ride a horse (laughs) pretty low on the twerp list but still makes it like i feel like uh, in this moment he could use a noogie um this scene it exists and so does the other scene that exists later in the episode with Podrick and Brienne where they're cooking rabbit, except it's just like straight up rabbit skin that he's making. Yeah. Um, and like they have like a happy moment where like she thinks that he is, she thinks that he's number one on the twerp list. Uh, and then uh, he is able to like recount the story about how he saved Tyrion at the Battle of Blackwater and she's like, oh, you can help me with my armor after all. Mm-hmm. And that's great. There's really nothing major to pick apart with those scenes unless you've got something. If only Mira Reed was around that she could have skinned that <laughs> rabbit like yeah, nobody's right. business. Oh, blah. All right. Let's get back to Arya. She is doing the water dancing and the hound uh, walks up and it says, what the hell is this? Who taught you this shite? This shite, uh, yeah, and she's like, Sirio Pharrell, the best swordsman ever! Yeah. And he really poo-poos that pretty fast. Yeah, I think he makes some good points here. He's like, uh, that's not how you would fight with a sword. If, if you fought like that, you would get killed. Yeah, but it depends on, like, who you're up against and what's the matchup and what are your strengths versus the other person. See no further uh, than Braun versus the the guy from the Vale. Well, who was that? That wasn't Sir Hugh. Sir Hugh was somebody mm-hmm. else, I think. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, that guy with the heavy armor and Braun is a lot lighter and able to just move around. So different styles, you know? Who knows? Yeah. I don't think that the Hound is right here as, like, a total rule. Right. Uh, you know, it's a little bit of what was working for the Red Viper uh, against right. the mountain. So, okay. Well, not, um, not much, ultimately. Yeah, yeah well, it, like, he, he was doing good for a while. It was Ego. It was yeah. Ego that slew the Viper. Yes. And so uh, she, she's telling the Hound, you know, what happened to Sirio Pharrell. It talks about how he got killed by Marin Trant. And the Hound's like, what? He got killed by Marin Trant? <laughs> <laughs> yes, drag him. <laughs> He's dragging Sirio Pharrell. Oh, yeah, my God. Yeah. It's like, wow. If he got killed by Marin Trant, he is not the best like, swordsman. He a sword. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, that's funny. Yeah, that's funny because I, I like that. It's it's obviously it's shading Serio Pharrell and that's sad because we love Serio Pharrell, but he's also shading Marin Trant, which is enjoyable because yes. that guy sucks. Yes. And so he gives a free shot to Arya and she tries to stab him in the gut and it does not work. And uh, the Hound proves his point. He says that like Marin Trant is alive because he had armor and a big effing sword. Got it? Yeah, and soon Marin Trant will not be alive because he will be wearing no armor Mm. and not in possession of a big effing sword. So, lesson learned. Yeah. Let's check in with Cersei, who goes to visit Prince Oberyn. And, you know, they're going to talk a little bit about uh, their backstory, about how they both are powerful people, but they could not protect the ones that they love. And uh, Cersei wants to get some updates on Marcella. And Prince Oberyn is talking about how that, look, she's doing great. They don't hurt little girls in Dorne. But Cersei reminds him they hurt little girls all over the world. And ultimately, they will hurt Marcella pretty good in Dorne. Yeah. Yeah. The Red Viper's wife, you know, his paramour is going to do the deed. So uh, this is this is ultimately retroactively going to hit pretty close to home. Yeah. Do you think he would have signed off on this if he would have been alive? No, I think that he is. um, it, It sounds like the Red Viper has a code 
to some degree, like even in the face of wanting to take down the mountain and the Lannisters, he's not going about it recklessly. He's letting them know they're on notice, right? Like he, it's no secret how he feels about them and that he wants justice, but he is not poisoning to, to get there. He's going to do it by the book with trial by combat and everything like that. So I don't feel First of all, the, the 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 reason to kill Marcel will not exist if he's still alive. So yeah. I think that that that's that's one. But I think also just in what we know about him and his tactics, I don't think that it's something he would necessarily employ unless he really did think it was a nuclear option, in which case maybe all bets are off. Now, Cersei is building a ship for Marcella's name day. They're going to have uh, it shipped to Dorne. Do we see this ship in season five? Oh, blissfully, Rob, I have forgotten okay. so much, if not Keep all of Dorne. Be on the lookout for that. <laughs> yeah, you tell us, because I don't remember, and I don't want to think about it until I have to. Okay. All right. So this is then we check back in with Pod and Brienne. Pod. And the rabbit. Pod, mm. are you burning dinner again? Oh, Podrick. I wanted to be in the fight. <laughs> <laughs> uh, great spinoff show. That's going to be one of the spinoffs. <laughs> okay. The Pod and Brienne sitcom. All right. Uh, let's start to check in with what is going on north of the wall. And so we see lock is uh he's like the lookout the lockout and uh, he's, he's rest uh taking a girl outside right so he's like he's scouting out what's going on here and lock is just like hiding right behind a tree that is pretty close to craster's keep and it is the opposite of the scene that we were talking about last week where it was so refreshing to just see bran and the reeds get knocked out for being <laughs> way too close lock apparently has the invisibility cloak he's fine yeah and so <laughs> lock is like sneaking around but then he makes like a lot of noise he like bumps into one of the like a big chain makes a lot of noise outside nobody catches him uh he sees bran and the prisoners uh tied up uh bran and jojin and mira uh, they have a, a little bit of a vision quest where uh, Bran sees uh, the uh, Weirwood tree, the great Weirwood tree. Right. His final resting place. Uh, and like he has he, he does kind of like suggest that he is not long for this world. He certainly looks pretty worse for wear. Um, at this point, do you think that he knows exactly what is coming his way? Yeah, I mean, he does have the uh, green sight, as he will uh, mention to Carl Tanner in a little bit. So I, I do think that Jojen Reed knows how this all is going to turn out. I do think so. There's that really odd scene of him looking at his hand on fire, right? Yeah, like, that is it, weird. It's very weird. Like at the end, like he's like, I know how this is going to end. And he's looking at his hand and his hand is on fire and nobody is commenting on such an occurrence. So you got to imagine this is happening exclusively in Jojen's perspective. Um, he is going to be consumed in fire after he's been stabbed a thousand times in the chest by the skeleton person. Right. Like, isn't that what's going to happen? Like they like burn him. Uh, doesn't like uh, leaf the, the children, the child of the forest, like drop mm -hmm. one of those Fireball. Molotov cocktails onto him. Yeah. So maybe. Maybe like that's just him like being really resigned to knowing exactly where he's going. Like he's seeing his hand on fire as if that's his final spot. It really did not make any sense. And I, I think it's one of those things where when, when you talked about in the opening about how that this is something that's a TV creation. I think they were throwing a lot of stuff at the wall. And uh, I'm not, not talking about not where the, the Night's yeah. Watch hang out. Right. And you're not talking about Molotov cocktails either. <laughs> right. Okay. So Locke comes back, talks about how there were 11 men at Craster's, 11 mutineers, and we're going to carve them up like walnut pie. But he says, hey, but. I believe his name was hot pie, yeah. actually. <laughs> yeah. Locke. Locke says, uh, but hey, trust me. Don't go into there's this uh, one shack. This is one hut. Uh, don't go in there. There's dogs in there. Right. And John's like, oh, what's in the hut? It's like, hey, nothing. You don't want to know. It's totally fine. Dogs. Don't there's, get them worked up. They're smelly and they're bad and you don't want to go. Yeah, they're dogs. If they see you, they will bite you. If you, do, if you don't go in there, they will just they will stay asleep. Your brother is definitely not in there. Yeah. He might be in there. <laughs> that 
Locke knows that this is Jon Snow's brother. Can't tell him about this. We'll see later on. Locke is going to take Bran Stark. And what is he going to do with him? He's going to run with him all the way back to the dread fort. (laughs) (laughs) How is he going to get past the wall when he's a a fake (laughs) night's watchman when he comes back? Like he's going to say like, Oh, I'm back. And I found this kid. And then what is like brands are going to be, you know, like knock it, like hit him over the head with a hammer before they get to the wall and then say, Oh, let's put him into bed and then sneak out from the wall in the middle of the night with brand Stark. And why is he a valuable hostage? Well, he's a valuable hostage because he's a Stark. That is valuable. For I sure. guess so. To what? To the people in the north say, like, "Hey, we got yeah. Bran Stark, so you better yeah. you know, uh, yeah. kiss uh, uh, Roose Bolton's butt." Because right, I think so. I think like that's the power move and all of that. That that all tracks for me. Locke's plan here is bad. Um, and it flies in the face of the guy we saw, you know, at the Night's Watch and blending in fairly seamlessly up there and really seeing to bro down pretty effectively with Jon Snow. And Jon's like, oh, I like this Locke guy. He seems pretty cool. We're shipping them. Jon Locke is a thing. And here comes Locke, and he's very sloppy at Craster's Keep. That being said, this is also the same guy who thought it'd be a great idea to behand Jamie Lannister. Yeah. Uh, Probably not a great idea. No, in his retrospect. original mission that Roose Bolton gives him is, you know, go find the kids because they could go to Jon Snow. But I kind of felt like at the point where uh, Locke is going on this mission that he's going to do go on this mission to kill Jon Snow. Right. I mean, he had no reason to believe that Bran would be at Craster's Keep. Yeah, I guess. Uh, no, well, no. Okay, so when when Locke overhears the plan between John and Sam talking about why they would go to Craster's, doesn't John say something to the effect of like, oh, "I wonder if Bran is there." That sounded like Sam. I don't know why that came out of John's mouth. But didn't they didn't they have like because they're talking about how Sam let them north and like then maybe maybe we could find them if we went up north. We have to go back maybe, and and, yeah. uh, and check. We it gotta out. rewatch that again. <laughs> <laughs> Let's not get lost in the Jojen reads on this one. We can yeah. get this wrong, and I'm fine. All right, all right, time for the man of the hour, Carl Effing Tanner <laughs> from Gin Alley. Oh, he's back. God. He's back and he is awful. And he's back and he's ready to talk about one thing that Carl, Carl Tanner loves is girls with curls. That's right. Wow. Like his mom had. Oh my God! That needs to be if we ever do uh, the the Westeros wand off the wald off. Uh, we really, we really, girls with curls has to be a song that's in there. Uh, yes, that's that's just amazing. Carl Tanner, two episodes in a row talking about those brown curls. Can't get enough. He's so over the top. He's so extra. He's, He's announcing awful. to everybody. I always liked a girl with curls. Come on, let's go see her. Let's go check it out again. No, the worst, the worst. (laughs) Carl Tanner. Yeah. Oh, God. Everybody probably just let him win in those fights in Gin Alley because they're like, oh, here comes Carl again. He's so insufferable. Just let him win. Yeah. It's a weird scene of, you know, Carl Tanner that he is uh, getting ready to do uh, terrible things to Mirror Reed. Nobody says, uh, hey, Carl, you want the room? You want us to? Yeah. You want us to get out of here? It's like uh, I don't know what, it, what that. Uh, he's a he's a messed up guy, Carl Tanner. And the the atmosphere at Craster's Keep has become uh, positively hedonistic at this point. So I think everyone's <laughs> down to stick around. Yes, uh, they like it in the gutter, so to speak. Yes, yes. Uh, he's asking her again. I feel like we've kind of uh, already visited this line of questioning with them. But uh, what's a pretty little high born girl doing out here? And he's, he's malfunctioning. Saying, no dresses yes. for you. You yes, like it rough. Yes. You like this, it in the gutter. <laughs> Ro- robot Carl malfunctioning for sure, because all of this we already addressed in the previous episode. Like, why are we just retreading all this? Like, literally, it's just the show <laughs> being stuck like, in a loop. <laughs> yeah, he is. Yeah, his consciousness is developing in a simulation somewhere, and he's not ready for the real world. Yeah. Uh, Jojen interjects. Hey, Carl Tanner, guess what? I have the sight. I can see things. Uh, and Carl Tanner is like, oh, that's a fine thing. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> Did you great. see what I'm going to do to your sister? Because I've been talking about it for two weeks straight. What what a great what a great way to describe his rea- his reaction to Jojen having this sight. Oh, that's a fine thing. That's a fine thing. I hate you, Carl Tanner. <laughs> you are the worst. And Jojen's going to tell Carl like, no, but I see you die tonight. And uh, he really doesn't give him like the headline. He says, I see your body burn and snow fall on your bones. John uh, Snow? I, I guess technically John Snow, like, he kind of like lunges. Speaking in riddles. Carl's. Yeah. yeah. But he should have been like, yeah, you get stabbed in the back first. And then John Snow stabs you through the head and out your mouth. And it's so gnarly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, here comes the Night's Watch and uh, big battle scene. Huge battle scene. Uh, as the last like 12 minutes or so of the episode is going to be everything that's going on here. Uh, and it's going to, it's going to start with like Locke is going out there and he's killing people and he's going to find Bran and Hodor and Mira and Jojen. He's like, Hey, are you Bran? And Bran's like, I'm not going to tell you that I'm Bran. I'm not going to say I'm not Bran. And Locke doesn't need to listen anymore because he just stabs him in the leg, gets no reaction out of him, and determines that, okay, so you're Bran Stark because you couldn't feel anything. You're coming with me. And he launches his very, very terrible plan. He got too cocky towards the end, this Locke. Yep. And so Bran is able to uh, warg into Hodor, and he's able to get him to a breakout. And then uh, Hodor does like a a choke slam move to lock and basically just like uh, snaps his neck like a chicken. It is damn. a yes, damn indeed. It is a, a nasty finishing move uh, straight out of Mortal Kombat. Uh, he, he's going to kill Locke this way. And then when Hodor becomes Hodor again and sees what he's done, he does not like what he is seeing. And this is sad because yes. we know that Hodor eventually is going to die and really has lived his entire life in this manner because of Bran doing stuff like this through Hodor. It's all very circular and soup's tragic. Yeah. When does it end, Bran? Never. It's the loop. <laughs> Talk about the loop. Um, Hold the door. Talk about the door. The door was meant for you, Hodor. Bran is trying to signal to John. John, John. And uh, Joe Jensen. Yes. Uh, No, you can't. Don't call him. He won't let us go. Yeah, he's right. You know, if you if like they've gone all this way to go see the three eyed raven, I think if they like stop and talk to John, uh, you know what? That being said. Doesn't Bran at this point, if he starts to tell John about like some of his visions and everything and what he has seen and what they have faced and what they're up against and like, I was there, I was in, I was in, I, I warged into the summer. Hey, look, watch me warg. And like, they've got like this big battle that's going on. Like maybe John like entertains Bran to a degree, maybe takes him back to Castle Black, rests up a little bit. Hopefully they survive against the wildlings, but maybe they're able to go up and find the three-eyed raven together. I don't know. I guess it ultimately works out-ish, but all these people are going to die as a result of Bran continuing with the mission. And maybe if they just pumped the brakes for a week, two weeks, three weeks, everyone would be okay. Yeah, but I mean, this was everybody's destiny. Uh, John can't, you know, take too much of a hiatus. He doesn't have that much downtime to go make a trip to uh, go to the weirwood tree. Yeah, but he could send like Gren. Gren would go. I know. Gren's up for anything. But there was a whole season where where, where Jon Snow, you know, was dead and dealing with the Battle of the Bastards, and uh, you know, there was there was a, a ton of stuff going on. Uh, I, that might have been season six, but um, the brand is like MIA season five, right? I guess you there's know, like a whole they, season of stuff that he has to be doing. They really need brand to grow, literally. Like he, he needs, needs to, to stop growing. Yeah, the actor just needs to go off screen so that when he comes back, it can make some sense that he is a taller young man. Mm -hmm. All right. It's time for our main event. (laughs) Jon Snow versus Carl effing Tanner and uh, Carl Tanner from Janali, a classy move when Jon Snow enters Craster's Keep. Uh, Carl Tanner does like a curtsy, like, oh, Jon Snow. I know. A pleasure. (laughs) He's like, 
I don't know. He's like one of those uh, boss battles in like a side scroller arcade game, mm-hmm. like a like a final fight or a Streets of Rage or whatever, where like you are midway through the level and you now have to fight like this one character sprite that looks different from the others and has like this punk quality to him. But you know how this is going to turn out. This is not going to be a main boss battle. Jon Snow is going to be able to take this guy on with little trouble. You might get some spit in your eye, but that's the worst of it. Yeah. I mean, Carl Tanner gets some blows in on uh, Jon Snow, stabs him a couple times uh, and is really dissing him in terms of uh, you learn how to fight in the castle. Oh, it's some (laughs) old man teach you how to stand. Uh, A lot of mocking people's uh, fighting styles in this episode. What's wrong with castles? You know, if you're born into a castle and if you're a good person, at least, you know, leave them alone. Yeah. Oh, you learn how to fight with honor. I learned <laughs> how to fight on effing Gin Alley. Yeah. I learned how to fight with Jervis. Hey, Jon Snow, I like your hair. Very curly. <laughs> it's nice. Oh, my God. I wish that we'd my gotten so straight. I can't do anything with it. <laughs> that's it. That's it. He's got the bowl cut. He's like getting the permanent bowl cut. He can't get out of it. He can't leave the bowl cut. Yeah. Uh, here comes one of Craster's daughter wives, and uh, she's going to get a big assist on this. She stabs him in the back. Yeah, this is the alley-oop. The gin alley-oop is what occurs here. She stabs uh, Carl in the back. He's very annoyed about this. Is there any significance to this particular Craster wife? Have we seen her before? No, I think it's just like she's the avatar of all of the abuse that Craster's mm-hmm. daughter wives have suffered under A, him, and B, them. Uh, and she, she looks gets, like she's been suffering for uh, quite a long time with Craster. Yeah, maybe lifelong. <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe this was the uh, daughter wife number one. Who knows? But either way, like she's ready to she's ready to rock. And <laughs> she's she take- seen a lot. Yeah, so Carl Carl Effing Tanner's winning streak is about to come to a close. Yes, and Jon Snow is going to put a sword through the back of Carl Effing Tanner's neck and it, it comes out his mouth. And yeah, you would think that Jojen might have described this, but maybe didn't want to give uh, Carl too much of a heads up. Yeah, I think like, I saw you die tonight. It's so gross. Yeah. It's re- really gross and very bloody. <laughs> One and, of Craster's wives is gonna stab you in the back. Yeah, and then and then, uh, you, then you eat a sword, but like it's it it's almost like the sword eats you. It's so gross. It's so gross. <laughs> it's so gross. Okay, uh, f- five brothers were lost on this mission. All, all brothers, all red shirts, all red shirts. And none of the none of the <laughs> and lock. None of the main none of the main crew. Mm-hmm. Um, so all told, like not bad. Yeah. Uh, 10 mutineers have been found, but I thought there was 11. Where is Rast? Oh, we know where Rast is. <laughs> yep. Uh, he had to taunt Ghost last week. Yeah. Big yep. so, mistake. So he's running away uh, and Rast stops and he sees like the cage where Ghost was is open and Ghost springs out from the night. And uh, it's it's just a shame that we we get only like a split second of it. I feel like we deserve to see just like a little bit more of what happens to Rast. Mm -hmm. Now, tell me, Josh, uh, that is Rast a book creation or is he a TV only creation? Yeah, Rast is is from the books. Uh, also dies in the in the books, but not from Ghost. He gets killed uh, at the Battle of Castle Black. This is according to uh, a wiki of Ice and Fire as a refresher. Yeah. Uh, where Rast is going to get killed at the Battle of Castle Black when a Fen shoves a spear into him. Okay. So this was a bit more of a poetic end for Rast, who we see back in season one when uh, John is having Ghost wake him up. Like, Rast was very scared of Ghost the whole way through. Correct. Maybe he had yeah. the green sight. I think that's possible. Yeah. Okay. So we see John and the Night's Watchmen round up the rest of the remaining uh, Craster daughter wives, and they say, you know, why don't you come with us to Castle Black? She's like, no. No, we're not doing that. Uh, Well, what do you want to do? You're going to stay here? And he said, well, what should we do with Craster's Keep? Burn it to the ground. Why? What are they going to do? 
they'll find the way somehow. Craster is gone. They, they, they had a house with all of this. Like Craster's Keep was like this great place that you could. They had food. They had firewood. It was the only. Where were they going? Sawdust bread. Winter is coming, Craster's wives. Why are you burning your house down? All God, the bad people are gone. Goblets made out of skulls. It, that made no sense. You've got all. You've got. You've got a roof here. No, they don't. That Craster's key. Now they don't. Now they don't. Yeah, bad. You know, bad. Bad mojo. Move on. You know, it's like uh, they move they're on finally, to where they're, they're finally the they're, fi- they're finally able to escape Murder House. You know, burn down they're Murder House if you to got death this shot. Tomorrow. Yeah, they've cursed themselves. <laughs> they, <laughs> what are they thinking? This is bad. This is bad. Uh, don't believe we ever encounter any of them again. Yeah, because they're all dead. <laughs> <laughs> they all had uh, hypothermia and died the are, next day. <laughs> are you just upset because now that Craster's Keep has burned down and you've been reminded of it, there's no returning to Craster's Keep and our watch has officially ended in that regard? If I told them once, I told them 99, <laughs> the 99 times, times, don't burn the house down. <laughs> <laughs> oh, rest in peace, Craster's Keep. Uh, yeah, we'll find a way to keep him with us. I'm sure he'll return. What he'll return. were they thinking? And no, no John Snow is like, are, are you sure you weren't burning the house down? Yeah, I think he he maybe should have like really spoken up about that a little more. It's like I get it. Uh, okay, I, I get it. you don't want to come to the wall, but where are you guys uh, gonna live? You should stay. <laughs> if you're not going to come to the wall, you should definitely stay here at least. Yeah. So I don't know. Maybe they had like plans to build a new house or go uh, wherever. Maybe one of those abandoned uh, wildlings towns. Right. But I think at the same time, maybe Jon Snow wants them to leave Craster's Keep so they won't be intercepted by Mance Raider's army. That was like the worry in the first place and then maybe they but, would but be like... Where they, oh, don't yeah. they have a greater chance to run into Mance Raider's army when they're wandering around aimlessly or does Jon Snow feel like, okay, well, if they just freeze to death tomorrow, then uh, oh, we don't sure. worry about them. Yeah, maybe. Maybe. But that that's a very uh uh no pun intended cold tactic from Jon yeah. Snow if that if that's what he's thinking. So I'm uh, sure it's not what he's thinking. All in all, fun stuff, but kind of a soft ending on uh burning Craster's keep to the ground. Soft ending and not a great episode of Game of Thrones. <laughs> I think, you know, so- solidly lower tier episode yeah, of Game of Thrones. A little bit I would of a say. peace mover. Uh, what are, besides for all of the hijinks at Craster's, uh, what is the iconic thing about this episode? What is this episode uh, remembered for, if anything? Podrick screwing up the rabbit. <laughs> Just like really botching the rabbit, the rabbit cook. Yeah. Cook job. I think the Carl Tanner death, I think, is pretty memorable. Yeah, but again, like it really, and you know, it's, it was fun to revisit, but it really is just manufactured to, to eat up some screen time, uh, at this point in the season. And I think that it really does show, uh, there's really no like, you know, lasting dividends of this stuff. It's really just for, well, we got to yeah. give Jon Snow and these characters a little bit more to do. Yeah. So they built this story into it. The Littlefinger, Lysa, Sansa stuff, I do think is uh, pretty that's important good. and memorable. Yeah, that's good. But that's good. other than that, we're, you know, just uh, filling time with a lot of these other stories right now. A weaker episode for sure. And I, I think probably of the five that we've seen of season four so far, uh, I'm not a huge fan of some of the stuff that happens in three, but like it was really just the one scene, the, the Jamie scene. Otherwise, yeah. that episode was pretty good. Uh, I think this is probably the weakest of four so far. And this is a really strong season. So it's allowed to have like a little bit of a dud. And it was still kind of like just an enjoyable dud if you turn if you turn your brain off or some of this stuff towards the end, especially and just. Enjoy the ride that is Carl Effing Tanner. From Gin Alley. From Gin Alley. Loves curls. <laughs> so weird. <laughs> who, who, who signed off on this character? <laughs> so strange. Right? Like, it's just such a, an, an odd thing for this show to have done was to give us freaking Carl Effing Tanner of Gin Alley who loves curls. It's just so funny to, like, see those scenes back to back. Like, he loves <laughs> curls. Hates castle swordplay. If he had made it honor, 
if he'd made it one more episode, what are the odds that he would have talked about curls again? 100%. 100%. 100%. Ladies, we've got a new invention here. It's called a curling iron. <laughs> the curling iron throne. And it's my chair made of melted curling iron. Then later on, we're going to go out on the ice and we're going to play curling. <laughs> the game. My favorite Olympic, sport. Olympic sport. <laughs> That you know you like, but you sometimes forget what it is. Yes. You know how some of you sweep the floor at Craster's? <laughs> All right. That's what it is. You rub the ice with things that look like brooms. <laughs> I think maybe they are brooms. I don't know sports very well. <laughs> All right. Uh, that'll do it for us here today. Halfway through season four, Josh. All right. Uh, halfway through the best season of Game of Thrones. Uh, got some fun stuff coming up. I'm very happy about where we are in uh, the overall arc of season four so far. Big episode next week. The Laws of Gods and Men uh, with uh, a spectacular uh, scene-stealing, show-stopping performance from one Dink. Peter Dinklage. The Dink is really going to rocket this coming weekend the return of shay yeah yeah okay so a lot of stuff to get to uh next week of course uh so much going on on the post show recaps because uh josh wiggler and joe garfine are covering westworld and it is coming to a uh, climactic season finale this weekend the episode nine recap uh should be posted imminently yeah, so that should be coming your way in just a bit. Look for that to drop on a Thursday. Man, I am morn. caught up. And you're loving it. Loving it. Loving you it. Were, you were riveted by the penultimate, oh, by uh, the I, second I to last like, episode. I felt like I was right there. You were there. Yes. Oh, my God. You, you no longer know if you are man or machine. You are certainly a host, Rob Sesternino, a great <laughs> yes. host at that. Yes. Podcast house. Can't wait to see yes. how uh, Westworld will wrap it all up uh, this weekend. Very exciting. How, how long of an episode are they doing on Westworld this weekend? Uh, it is nine minutes short of Craster's favorite number. Ninety <laughs> minutes. I'll make a ninety-minute episode. Yes, yes. <laughs> a ninety-nine-minute episode would have been better. <laughs> Yeah. Craster's keep is to uh, Westeros, like uh, one of these like places on the outskirts of Westworld that nobody ever ends up finding or going to. Yeah. It's like the pariah of Westworld. <laughs> it's like the place where there are no rules and nothing makes sense. Yes. I've invented a new character. His name is <laughs> <laughs> Of all of the characters, you were my favorite, Carl. <laughs> As he kisses Carl Tanner on the forehead. Ford, we uh, hate these new stories. <laughs> this is, wasn't even in the book. You just tag this in. I feel like the Carl Tanner story is decidedly a Sizemore joint. Like, this feels like uh, Lee Sizemore cooked this one up. All right. A uh, little repetitive. All right. Thanks so much, everybody. Uh, we'll be back with more Game of Thrones next week. Take care. Have a good one. Bye. Bye.